that it? I thought it would be bigger. I mean, it's just a little cube. We're making some strange sounds, though. I guess this is what we came for. This is what it's all about. The beginning, the end, the, the brain behind all of it. The, the good, the evil of all we've been through. The, just this? It's just a little cube. It's... Programs, it's old Hanker Inferno here. Brandish Gilhelm coming back at you. Welcome back to Runehammer, everybody, and welcome to the RPG Mainframe Podcast. We're sitting here on episode 34. How cool is that? So, hey, if you're just now showing up, be sure to use the RPG Talks tag uh, to search on Patreon, and you can access all of the podcasts for one stinking dollar. And just sit there, what, with 34 episodes? That's probably going to be like... 20 hours of listening me drone on about all the wonders and deep thinking in RPGs. Ooh, boy, that just sounds like a couple of days of complete craziness. <laughs> all right, we're sitting here on episode 34, and there's no time to goof around, because we have got a large meal of RPG to get through. And uh, to get started, I would like to thank Greg Kelly for his recent comment here on Patreon, sort of asking in-depth and very well-spoken question about the nature of campaign building and publishable, playable information and concepts for ICRPG, and I think in general, I think this question applies to everything that we're collecting as RPG weirdos and the way that we are building our super shelves and, you know, we have to decide how to spend our next 50 bucks and, you know, which book are we going to get? How much do we use it? What do we look for in books? Do they come through on our expectations? And all these different questions are kind of all wrapped up in this fundamental issue, which is about campaigns. Campaigns. So exactly what is the sort of the big theoretical framework we're working with here. What what about campaigns is A, so fascinating to us as game masters and as players, frankly. And then how does that compare to the sort of one-shot mentality as we know it, the one night of gameplay that kind of begins and ends all in one capsule? Why is it so exciting and interesting to us to play in campaigns versus those one-shots? And then we got to get down to some nuts and bolts, right? I mean, how do you do it? How do you do, not only do a campaign, you know, just play week to week, but what makes it memorable? What's going to set it apart from, you know, one-shot gameplay? What's going to, you know, make players rant and rave and eager to drive back to your house the next week and get beers and snacks so that they can see what happens next? How do you deliver that? And I think the most difficult question we're really facing here is not just how to do that, but how can it be published in a way that's truly usable? And this is really one of the main thrusts of Greg's question here. And what I want to do is just take a big approach to it, and let's just sit down for a minute and think about the campaign. Okay, so first of all, you guys know my fundamental battle cry when it comes to building and executing a campaign as a game master. It's all about planning one night at a time. And 
using this absolutely brutal discipline on yourself as a game master, as a world creator, as a, as a visionary, not to overstep that rule. So this doesn't hamstring you, though, from creating a great campaign, even though this may seem a little shocking at first, right? Like, I want to plan a campaign. I don't want to just make one night of gameplay. I want to plan out a cool campaign. I want to build the world and design all the different factions and, and the forces that are at play and so forth. And so at first, you might feel very hamstrung that you only get to do one night of design work. But what I would like you to see is that all of the challenges that are really going to set a grip or, or a, a, a stickiness or a memorability to your campaign are executed by doing it one night at a time. Now, this does propose the interesting problem or question that Greg is bringing up in his comment, which is like, if I think that way and I do things that way, how do I get real quality progression? Okay, so before I get into the nuts and bolts of how I like to do that and how Index Card RPG really, I think, shines in doing that, I want to answer Greg's best critique here that he's hitting me with. And, and that is, he's saying that Index Card RPG is all about a roller coaster, right? Not a linear progression. And, and I agree with him there. That is absolutely by design. It's a roller coaster because gear can come and go and gear really is your progression. Okay, so that isn't his critique. His critique is specifically, he says, generally speaking, or usually, a campaign involves a big evil force or big bad guy, as we know them, that cannot be defeated in the beginning, and players then must power up and develop in all kinds of different ways, and the story develops in all kinds of different ways so that they can confront and eventually defeat this evil force or character, right? And this is one of the most frequent structures that we see to a campaign. And so Greg is saying, if that's the case, then how am I going to use a roller coaster sort of game mechanics system to get this progression so that players can gradually become capable of taking down this big bad guy? Now, I have two answers for you on this, Greg, and uh, I don't mean either one to be the answer. I think both of them are an answer. Okay, first of all, I want to say the easy one. The easy answer here is that there is a lot of linear progression in ICRPG if you as the game master are very lenient with robbing characters of their gear. Now remember, characters do have gear limits. They have 10 carry, 10 equip, right? And so they wind up wanting a stronghold where they can store gear. They start choosing better gear to carry and equip over time, and they do upgrade in a linear fashion. They especially upgrade in a linear fashion if you're awarding stat points or heart stones as milestone rewards or just on-the-spot rewards for being totally awesome. They become far more powerful. A character in ICRPG with 30 hit points is intensely powerful, much less when they start getting into sort of double effort kind of mechanics or when they can, you know, move twice as far or, you know, do twice as much type of stuff, right? And there's all kinds of different ins and outs with gear that can create these kinds of power-ups. If you don't take those things away from them, they upgrade in a linear fashion. And remember, the only reason that ICRPG is a quote-unquote roller coaster is because me, I as a game master, just my particular style and my player's style, we have a lot of fun with gear being destroyed and lost, and it creates that roller coaster. The roller coaster is not implicit to the game mechanics. 
It is a, a way or a style of game mastering. So if you do want a linear progression and you want to stick in sort of canonical ICRPG, it can absolutely be done. Just don't go taking away their gear or throwing a lot of corroders at them, you know, stealing their equipment and so on and so forth. You will find them update, uh, upgrading vastly especially if you get real comfortable with rewarding. Lately, uh, following Alex Alvarez's style, I've been rewarding a lot more openly. And so I'm rewarding between five and eight times per session rather than one to three, which used to be sort of my pace. It's just a lot of reward happening. And it's great because this is also a Desert King style. Give them all the power. Let them grow quickly. Let them choose how they want to grow, not just if they can. And then the challenges that they face aren't just power challenges. They're challenges of story, they're challenges of planning and of tactics, and their power is almost moot because the forces they're facing are so intense. Okay, so that's my first answer to this tough question. ICRPG actually does allow for linear growth. It's just a simple matter of how you use it. If you use it in a more of a D&D way, you can just award stat points. You can even put feats in your ICRPG game. Just take a piece of loot and make it a feat, and there you go. It is now not losable. It is more like a skill. And this is just a way of changing the terminology, whereas all that mechanical work is done. You could also make a simple rule that any gear that you earn from a tier in a path, which is in ICRPG worlds, cannot be traded, given, destroyed, or taken or lost. It's, it's sort of permanent in you. And maybe even you could say it doesn't occupy inventory space. Then you really have created a skill or a feat out of a piece of loot, and you get this linear progression. Another huge one is attribute points or stat points. Just hand out a stat point. Okay, guys, great session. Everybody take a stat point. Linear progression. Now, my second answer to this critique or question is the much more difficult one, and I think the more argumentative one. So, Greg, I want you to hold on to your, hold on to your uh, saddle here because it's going to get a little bumpy. I really like the way that Greg's question is posed because he says, usually a campaign has this big bad guy that you encounter, then players power up. This paradigm is as old as all RPGs. I remember one of my favorite RPGs of all time, Faxanadu, had this fundamental pillar going on. So did Final Fantasy, so do a lot of them, and, and a lot of the early pen and paper ones as well, like you had Aserac, right? And Aserac was completely unapproachable at first, and you build your way up to it. Same with any, if you take a modern example, like Out of the Abyss, you have a similar thing going on. Even the terminology in the way that campaigns and modules are published and written, it implies that this is an unavoidable situation, right? Uh, the way that they describe, you know, this module is made for players to start at level one and to get to level seven. And that's how it's designed. One of my all-time favorite campaigns, The Rise of the Rune Lords, is designed this way. They're going to start at this power, and they're going to end somewhere around this power, and this is how the campaign is designed. We all know and love this paradigm of designing campaigns, but I am here to, perhaps at my own peril, say that that design paradigm is fundamentally flawed. It is fundamentally flawed in assuming this path. And this, to me, is what I want to work against with the podcast and with the mainframe, is this idea that you start with little mooky bad guys and you work your way up to confronting a bigger bad guy. And we also find one of my least favorite terminology or terms happening in this paradigm, which is balance, right? The campaign is balanced to our party power level, 
right? And so in the beginning, a balanced encounter is challenge rating one. And at the end, a balanced encounter is challenge rating 20 and so on and so forth. This to me is completely erroneous. To think that the difficulty of what's happening is somehow concordant to the power of the players, to me, is a recipe for a very bland, straight-line-feeling campaign. Rather, and this is what I would like to propose, throw out the age-old tradition of encountering a monster who's too too powerful for you, they laugh in your face, then you go and do a bunch of gameplay to get powered up and someday reach their power level and confront them. Throw it out. Now, is it bad? Is it dumb? Is it boring? No. But I want to put forth right here my theory that the plan one night at a time approach has many far-reaching ramifications that place the path of the campaign completely beyond your control as the game master. You have no idea what kind of confrontations are going to occur, much less if they are going to be numerically balanced or in the player's favor in any way. You are not designing the gameplay. You are not designing the events or the story or even the fundamental existential and metaphysical truths of your game world. Those are the fun things we get to do as game masters, right? No, you're not doing those things. You are creating the stage for one night of fun gameplay. So many of the details of that night of gameplay are in the hands of the players, whether they know it or not. And most importantly, fundamentally critical to the style of campaign that I like is that you do not know where it's going. You do not know because you have not even thought about it. You have have the discipline to plan one night at a time so controlled. You don't even have assumptions or desires about what's going to follow. You completely leave it in their control. They have taken it and formed it into something that you probably never even wanted it to be. (laughs) And if you can accept that and be comfortable with it, then in my opinion you have reached a very high level in your skill as a game master. And I would like to say that this this discipline, this relaxation, this calm on the side of the game master is the key to a truly revolutionary and exciting campaign. Okay, now that's just the first bullet in our discussion is the question of progression and the the sort of the one-shot crutch of ICRPG, right? A lot of people believe that ICRPG is a little bit limited because it's made for one shots. And that was never my intention with the design. My intention with the design was streamlining and eliminating cognitive dissonance in RPGs, but also playing on the things we really want, which are rollover D20, which are using all seven polyhedrals, which are keeping time moving quickly getting cool treasure and having monsters that can be played directly out of the book without a lot of reading and a lot of book checking. So ICRPG as a one shot, it sure works great, but I think it works just the same or, and I'm here to argue it, better than a lot of the RPGs we have access to right now. Not because the math is more interesting or the loot is more interesting or the monsters are more evolutionary or any of this kind of stuff, but because of one fundamental theoretical shift from a lot of what we see out there today, which is that you only get to plan one night at a time. Even if your campaign's going to last five years, one night at a time. And this discipline is what's going to not only set you free, but also create 
an indelible can campaign for the players. Okay, so now we come to the second part of Greg Kelly's question here, which is really now the fascinating part to me uh, because of my particular sort of livelihood. And so Greg's question here basically asks, if I only get to plan one night at a time, and if my players' actions and concepts and inventions and accidental additional details of the world are driving my perception of the truth of my world rather than a lot of pre-planning, let's say we're doing that. Okay, then let's say this campaign took a completely different direction than what I was imagining it as the game master. That's all fine and dandy, but... My friend, he asks me, how then can we ever publish this material? How can campaign-level material be delivered in a playable way if there is no sense of where it's heading besides the actions of the players? And the answer here is brutally simple. Brutally simple. It can't. It cannot be published. And this is one of the fundamental truths that get me so excited about RPGs as a hobby and as a lifestyle, which is that it can never be taken away from us by a publication company or by a content creator of any kind. It can never be taken away. It strictly and absolutely in every way that matters belongs to the people at the table that night. They decide everything, and no published material can ever capture that magic, ever. Much less the efforts of, you know, one person, which is all my little publishing brand is, right? And I think, for me, this is the rub of why some of these large D&D books uh, from Wizards of the Coast just never resonate with me. It's, it's this huge span of time and events that assumes so much. It just becomes this video game. And players are expected to just play through this. But what if they don't want to do any of that? What if they assume fundamentally different truths about the world? Are you the one who's going to correct them and say, no, no, actually, no, dragons don't do that kind of thing in this world. No, you want to go with their assumptions. You want to let them rewrite the metaphysical laws of your universe accidentally or incidentally as they play. This is what makes it our game. We own it as a play group. And no one of us can own it, much less some company that gives us something or some publisher. And so Greg's question is so fascinating to me because I make my livelihood on this stuff, but I don't believe in providing my wonderful readers with massive campaigns because it goes against everything I believe to be wonderful about the hobby, which is that you never know where it's going. And more often than not, it goes to places that you never saw coming. And if it doesn't do that, you're not experiencing its full potential to me. And so I want to give you guys an example of this. In my campaign right now, which I titled Gontelgrim, my fantasy as a game master was to get players into Gontelgrim, right? This is a legendary dwarven underworld, right? This is a whole sort of undermountain or kingdom underground. And I felt that the novels had not fully or properly explored what Gontelgrim could be. Or the source books, right? Gontelgrim is in some of the source books as well, and mentioned here and there in Volos and other places. But I wanted Gontelgrim to be my Gontelgrim, this vast dwarven realm with tunnels and traps and all this interesting stuff, this huge underground kingdom. We have not been in Gontelgrim proper at all yet, and we're coming up on our fourth session. <laughs> 
because the way the players chose to do things, they did not go into the depths. I wanted to do all this cool maze running stuff and all this stuff down in there. They didn't do it. They simply took another path. Now, could I have just only offered them the one or two solutions and sort of shoehorned them down into my dungeon where I wanted to have all the fun? Hell yeah. And it would have still been cool. I could have used different ways to use trap theory, right? I could draw them down into Gontelgrim, down into the Undermaze, and I could draw them there on their own motivations. I'm good at this stuff. I'm a master manipulator. I'm a game master. But I don't use that power. I have responsibility to preserve their freedom and to respect their choices. And I have that discipline not have to, to have this huge campaign already planned so that if they run off the rails, so to speak, I'm frustrated because all this content is now not being played. And so you see, in my own game, I didn't even get what I wanted. But here to me is the fundamental theoretical paradigm shift I want you guys to make if you want to join me in this style of play, that's a huge caveat, but is to truly embrace that you do not know where this is going. Okay, so a good example of this might also be with the Tomb of Annihilation. Let's you say you get this $50 book. You think it's spectacular. I love this new, uh, the undead or no longer undead thing and this whole way that the, the Arch Lich is taking over and Chult has dinosaurs and that's cool. But what if when the players begin, they, they meet, unfortunately, in a tavern and have this conversation and they decide, you know what they really want to do is get a ship and sail away, you know, sail off the coast from Chult and go explore this other kind of thing that they heard a rumor about, which you never even intended to drop as any kind of campaign clue. It was a completely accidental comment from a NPC that you were improvising their dialogue. <laughs> you just took the entire continent of Chult and left it behind. To me, the more limiting reaction to discover the depth and possibility of the tabletop RPG as a gameplay at lifestyle, what you're going to be limited in, is being frustrated by that. It's being like, oh man, but I just got this whole this whole book, which is all about Chult, and it's all about and, and they just sailed off in the first session. Did I just waste my $50? Now, in some ways, you could answer, yeah. Especially a pessimistic personality might say, I just wasted my 50 bucks. We're not going to be in Chult. But something more beautiful is happening here, and you didn't waste your money. As far as what's more beautiful, player agency has truly become real. And I hope that they know that. And you could even tell them that in a post-session tribunal, right? You can just say, you guys, I thought we were going to do this whole thing. This is crazy. You're just sailing off. I don't mean that as a critique. This is great. You know, you guys have truly changed the fundamental course of what this is going to be. But whoa, I'm feeling crazy over here as the game master, right? And then the second thing is you didn't lose all the content. You can now hack and cut and cram the content into your next night. And that's, again, this fundamental discipline into your next night of gameplay. Maybe there's a dungeon in Chult that you really wanted to do or that you think is cool. Then the weather kicks up and you give these, uh, these players some tough choices with their sailing voyage. Maybe they need to stop to resupply or maybe the weather buffets them in some way. And you know they're going to find their way to an island. It's an inevitable part of sailing, right? Especially in the ancient world. So you know that even though they're sailing on their own, there's going to be an island. It could be an island to the far north, to the south, depending on where they're going and stuff. But you can put it in their way a little bit. Then they get to the island. You have your dungeon there. But remember, if your discipline is true, they could still say, nope, I don't like the looks of this island. That temple's really weird. 
let's just stay right on the edge and, you know, kill a few pigs and stock up the, the larder and sail on. And you can't be frustrated by that. They are deciding this stuff. Now, this is where your master manipulator might need to do some deep thinking. How can I pull them into some danger? And now this is the way that you're creating one night at a time. You are going to pull them in a couple times, but by using their motivations, you know that they need or want X. And so you can place X anywhere, honestly, and draw them in. But you don't draw them in session to session. You only draw them in with that one night of action, one night of story of NPCs. And then you let them completely decide if they want to continue to pursue that. They want to leave. They want to go a different way. They want to completely change their goals and ambitions. They want to change their whole alignment, whatever. (laughs) And you're not frustrated by that. You are a leaf on the breeze. So, unfortunately, I have a really brutal answer to Greg's question here. You can't publish this stuff. No one can. Because it is strictly the purview of you and your friends at your table. So where does that put me, Runehammer, as a publisher of RPG content? Am I screwed? I wrote my core rules book and now I'm just done and okay, have fun, guys. You know what? In some ways, that is exactly what's happening. Now, I can continue to provide you guys with tools and with more fun pieces to work with, but I just don't believe in publishing campaigns. I just don't think it can be done. I like Rise of the Rune Lords because it's fun to read through and it's fun to pick, it, pick at it for little ideas, but I cannot imagine in my wildest nightmares having players play through a pre-written campaign that just... That, to me, misses the entire joy of what this hobby is and what I love about it so much. And so you have to ask this question of if we can't do it, if I, as Runehammer, can't do it, if I can't publish a campaign, then what's next? What am I going to do? My answer to that is that I can continue to report. And reporting, I think, on how our campaign is going does not give you what to play. What it gives you is this confidence to have the discipline. The confidence to have the discipline. That is what I want to sort of sell as Runehammer. I want to sell the training. I want to sell the program, the tools. But I cannot sell you D&D. I can't sell you a night at the table. I simply can't do it because of my own beliefs about the fundamental DIY core of what we do. I totally gimp myself as a business by having this view, but I simply can't deny it's what I believe. And so here's my new plan. As far as Gauntel Grimm as a campaign goes, which now even the name is a bit ironic, the best I can do is report to you guys exactly what's going down in our campaign. And it's not a report on my planning. It's a report on how my planning the night's events and the player's choices affect the next night's planning. That's what I want to report to you guys. And that to me is not what you can play. Or as Greg asks, he says, can we just have some playable content? My God, that's a wonderful request. But I can only give you small nuggets of playable content because I just don't know what your players are like, what they want or what they are into or what they're going to choose or how it's going to twist. So I can only provide you with little nuggets. That doesn't mean always play one-shots. It means this is all I can give you. And detailed reports about what happened to us. 
So I'm going to save that detailed report for, I think it might need to be in video form because there is a lot going on in our campaign already. You guys know how these campaign reports can be too. They can be huge walls of text. Now, while you're living these campaigns, they're terribly exciting and fun, but I've found as a player, even at my like almost infinite level of RPG enthusiasm, I find it not that interesting to read lengthy campaign reports or to listen to lengthy campaign reports. Um, you know, like Colville does some epic ones, right? At least for a while he was doing them. I don't think he does them anymore, but he was doing these epic campaign reports. He just would break down what hours of gameplay had, had become, all these details and nuances that, that were making the gameplay happen. He does those extremely well, but for me, it's just not something I want to listen to. I want to work on my game. I want to make my game better. I want better mechanical play. I want clever NPCs that are memorable. I want a little bit of humor. I want the trap theory part of things to really be tight. You know, how potently they're lured and how tightly I contain and drop the hammer on them. That's something I think about all the time as far as a game master, not necessarily hearing huge lengthy campaign reports. So this puts a burden on me of how can I deliver one of these in a way that I would want to see it done. And this is a problem, honestly, uh, my patrons, my shield wall, this is a problem I have been working on for months and have not come up with a truly elegant solution. You guys have probably noticed that I'm not really on YouTube much. It's been more than a month, I think, since I put a video up on YouTube um, that isn't just, you know, live Q&A type stuff. And that's because I'm truly struggling with a creative challenge here. I, I don't know the outcome. I, I, I haven't visualized this next epiphany of how to get this done. Now, I can tell you, just to end this sort of campaign discussion, that Gontelgrim and, and this, this play that we've been doing at my home table has been one of the most interesting and most amorphous and ever-evolving and changing campaigns I've ever done. It is truly player-driven. And for me, it's, it's been very challenging and also extremely exciting to try to keep the bait strong, to try to keep the story strong, and to not plan it out ahead, but to, to let it evolve organically. It has been so fun. But at the same time, it is nothing like what I wanted. <laughs> we are getting into some like astral plane stuff with portals. We are in the forest of Davakar from Simbaroom, and it's divided into these three factions. They're warring in a way that's morally ambiguous, and the players are needing to sort of find their way to this one destination, but they're not sure they even want to go there anymore. Now they're thinking maybe there's another way, and and you know how much time is elapsing has become a difficult problem for them. And so for me personally, I'm on this journey. I don't ever want my podcast or Runehammer in general to sound like I have the answers. I don't have the answers, but what I do know is I have mantras of power that remind me what I love most about doing the hobby, not about running a podcast, not about doing videos, not about writing modules or, you know, making books and publishing them and all this kind of stuff. But as a hobbyist, as a hobby game master, why do I do this all the time? And I come back to these same answers. I love to adapt to player action. And then I love to do the craft work and the planning work to make the next night really fun. And that makes making miniatures, modifying miniatures, making terrain, making mechanics and getting bullet lists done in my journal, making NPCs with, you know, maybe voices that are fun and stuff like this. 
you know, dilemmas that have no easy answer because I don't even know how they're going to get through this next whatever, whatever. That to me is just in, infinitely fun. And I collect books usually not to execute them, but just to mine them for little tidbits. One example is the Kriegs from Rise of the Rune Lords. The, the Krieg are in our world. They're in Davokar. So I have a Pathfinder monster faction that has been imported into a Simbaroom setting that is being played in Index Card RPG. And I know all you guys are doing this kind of crazy concept spaghetti in your own games. And here, I'm here as Runehammer to say, do it, go for it. Yes, all that crisscrossing madness is the path to a beautiful campaign. But you do not know what that path will be. And the not knowing and the finding the namaste in not knowing, that calm and that discipline, that to me is the anvil that is a great game master. And it's the players that are forging. You're not forging the sword. The players are. All you are is the anvil. And your role is to not move, is to be inert. And that can be very challenging sometimes because it's so fun to be that active agent. But you have chosen the dark path, the path less traveled. You've chosen the beautiful path, the path of the game master. All right, how about nuts and bolts? Let's talk nuts and bolts. How do you do this? If you've only planned one night of gameplay and then you're asking players to, you know, say whatever they think, what do you think is going on here? And like, well, we kind of thought that this guy was this guy. And you know what we should do is make a ship and we should sail over there. I'm like, we don't want to go up through the tower floors. We should just climb the exterior of the, the tower. Right, all these like improvisational components or unexpected components are coming your way. And so how do you adapt to them and, and what are your actual nuts and bolts techniques to mine this data and then plan your next night? Okay, so let's let's just do a few key methods or techniques that I use that are gonna help you do this. Okay, so I just have some bullets here, the fundamental stuff that I do. The first one is harvesting questions in the forms of truths. So a lot of times a question from a player will actually be a cloaked way of saying, I think this is the case. And so if they say, are gnomes evil in this world? As the game master, I'm thinking, oh my God, yes, the gnomes are totally evil. So that's the first one is like, when you get a, a key kind of world-making question from a player, externally, you may just be answering the question and everything's all calm and normal, but internally, your devious game master side is saying, oh man, that's true now. Okay. <laughs> Second one is to offer all your options at the session end, not at the beginning. And this is, this is a huge method. So at the beginning of session, it's sit down, have snack, everybody get, pull it together, and boom, we're right into what we planned on doing at the end of last session. There isn't a lot of question asking. There's not a lot of mining happening at that moment. But at the end of the session, this is where you not only want to be asking the most questions, but offering the most options. So sometimes players will have their own options that they want to pursue on their own. Other times they're just a little bit blank or maybe, you know, a little shell-shocked after a big battle. And they, you know, it can be helpful to offer them maybe two to five options of, of what you already think it sounds like they're wanting to do. So you aren't just offering them railroad options. You're offering them things that they've already said for themselves. You're just sort of summarizing those choices and bringing it out in the open 
obviously for the sake of prep and you're not cloaking that you're just saying hey guys so that i can better prepare for next session you know what are you thinking you're going to do that's end of session and you know what you know have you guys decided what you want to do with blah or do you really you know where are you headed with blah maybe make a quick note of that or just remember it and you're ready to plan your next night the next one is to move your content around. And so if you guys know the, um, the story building section in the Index Card RPG core book, there's a little piece there about building out a sort of an adventure story and how you can move some of that around. I'll call it leave no content behind or no content left behind. So if you have something cool that you've designed, a room or maybe a space, a little battle mechanic with some monsters, something like that, and it just gets skipped entirely, you can. they don't know that. They don't know it ever existed. So you can move that into their path if it fits for their next set of choices. And this way, you're never getting that that frustrating feeling of like having something cool and it never got played because that's not going to give you positive endorphins that you want to become more creative and to be enjoying the hobby to where you keep returning to it. So take your content, move it into their path, adjust it as necessary, and that way you never have any wasted work or wasted sort of hackery that you've done on published material, for example. Another big one that I do is at the beginning of the session is to remind them of their goals, of their player created goals, not your goals as the game master, but the things they proclaimed that they're wanting to do. So you bring their purpose or their motivation like right back into the forefront. And that can not only inform the beginning of the session, but give them a sense for like, did we accomplish any progress towards that? And you're just always reminding them, this is what you guys are doing. Um, next, we have uh, controlling their rest with sort of what I call active time. So one common problem in all campaigns is that players want to rest all the time. And they always want to regenerate and build things and be in town and buy things and get more powerful and so on and so forth. You don't want to control this by just saying, no, you can't go. Or no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Um, what, what you want to do is rather have the time in your world be active and real. So if players do spend 12 hours or 10 hours resting, 10 hours have passed in your world and evil forces are at work and there's going to be ramifications for that. So a lot of times you'll have a a time-sensitive goal that they're working on. And if they rest, that goal is no longer accomplishable. You know, the, uh, the innocents have been sacrificed. The ship has sailed. The ritual is complete. You know, things like this. So the, the reason they aren't resting isn't because you're cramming it on them or forcing it. It's because they literally can't waste the time or spend the time that it takes to rest while these evil forces are at work. So that's what I call active time. Make sure that your world is still alive when they're resting and changing in ways that are almost always detrimental to the player's goals. Then finally, and this one I've said a few times and I just want to put it on this bullet list, is like let them invent the truths of your world with their assumptions. And this could be any level of truth from the the nature of the cosmic layout, you know, like where the planes are, what dimensions there are, how far it is to a place, you know, if there is or was a thing, all the way down to micro details, like is there a, you know, a peach vendor in this town, you know. Or they can say, well, you know, I know a lot about magic and this forest is filled with magic. Now, you may not anywhere have a bullet in your prep that says, this forest has a bunch of magical power in it. But just the fact that a player says that and they, they take the initiative to say, I, I know magical things. I know about this ancient place and it has this, that, and the other property. It just does. The only time you don't want that to be the case is if it's directly in conflict with something that is unfolding or that's already happening in a way that just becomes nonsensical. Obviously, you don't want to do that. But generally, you want to let them invent the truths. 
Now, your role as the game master isn't so much inventing those truths as it is curating them. You want to store, arrange, and preserve those truths, not necessarily invent them. And by doing that night after night, as your campaign unfolds, you get this consistency, this progression, and this evolution that Greg is asking for in his questions. So those are just a few of the, the sort of nuts and bolts methods that I use to get this one planning, one night of planning at a time technique to work over time. And at first you might have to remind yourself a little bit, you might need some bullets, but over time it just becomes how you game master in a campaign. You, you harvest what they're doing, what they believe, and you offer these options at the right times to do your prep in a way that is directly acting on their agency, but not crippled by it. The path of the game master. You guys are the audience I was looking for, and not just audience, you guys are the peers I was looking for, the colleagues, the friends, in that you are the true DIY game masters. YouTube is exciting, but I find that YouTube is much more of a spectator sport, and it's much more momentary, and more sort of comedy-based, and, and some other things like this, and that's all fine, that's all great, it's, it's part of our world. But the interaction that I was truly seeking with an audience is happening live and direct right here on Patreon, and it deserves all of my attention. If occasionally there aren't as many podcasts or as much material as you would like, please feel free to ping me directly, and I'll do my best. But realize that most of the time, I delay my content because I am thinking about it. I am not quite there. I haven't quite seen the next vista on the journey. And I hope that that authenticity makes you feel as exhilarated about the hobby as it does me. And happy Thor's Day, everybody. This is episode 34 of the RPG Mainframe. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I will see you all on the internet. Stay tuned for an in-depth report in some form. I think there's going to be some doodles. There's going to be doodles and there's going to be drawings. <laughs> because that's how we do it here on Runehammer. So strength, honor. And beer. Keep that dial locked right here on Patreon. Thank you, my shield wall. Make your dice roll high. And I'll see you next time. This is Brandish Gilhelm, signing off.